Welcome everyone to the Serious Leisure podcast, where we bring you fascinating and inspiring stories about engaging with leisure seriously. We examine these stories through the lens of the Serious Leisure perspective, and we draw insights that can help us reflect on our struggles and our successes with balancing leisure, work and well-being. My name is Petya Petrova. I'm your host for today's podcast. I'm joined by our regular podcast contributors, Dr. Sam Elkington from Teesside University. Sam is our serious leisure expert. Welcome, Sam. Thanks, Petya. Hello, everyone. Hi, Sam. We're also joined by my colleague, Kat Branch. Kat leads our University of the West of England Centre for Music. Welcome, Kat. Good afternoon, everyone. For those of you new to the podcast, welcome and thank you for joining us. You may notice that we often abbreviate the University of West of England to UE. For our regular listeners, today's episode is our first solo guest episode. We are very excited to welcome today our podcast guest, Dr. Matt Wood. In his day job, Matt is a lecturer in social psychology at UE. And he researches in the field of human-computer interaction. Welcome, Matt. Hi, Petio. Hi, Kat. Hi, Sam. Lovely to be here. <laughs> Lovely to have you. Thank you so much for putting time aside for um, being a guest in our podcast. We often start, Matt, with uh, your professional context and your professional background. Uh, because that's often an interesting backdrop or juxtaposition of uh, the leisure pursuits we discuss. So can you just briefly introduce yourself to, to your audience and tell us something about your role and what your role at UE involves? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a lecturer in social psychology. I joined UE in January 2020, just before the pandemic hit. So uh, although I'm working at UE, I'm currently speaking to you from Newcastle, which is where I did my PhD in human-computer interaction. And yes, my day job involves mostly undergraduate teaching. So I teach qualitative methods. I teach identities in psychology. I teach a little bit on health psychology as well. And I tend to kind of major on the more critical qualitative approaches. So that's my kind of teaching role. I obviously do a lot of uh, marking and admin, as is the role of an academic these days. Thanks, Matt. Yes, marking an admin. Uh, oh, and I <laughs> suppose I do research as well, but um, research is one of the things that has uh, gone down the list a little bit this year as we all got our head round this new way of teaching online and new way of interacting with students. Yeah, I think um, I think that's a topic of another podcast, how you balance research and teaching responsibilities or research teaching and admin stroke marking responsibilities. Um, I, I typically say here we can have a whole together podcast just unpacking what you, you teach and what you research. And there's already so many um, nuggets in, in there, but that's not what we're here today for. Today we're here to talk about, and we're going to get into the grips of, is this a leisure 
but you met um, our puppeteer. We had a meeting uh, where I kind of saw a really interesting puppet in the background. And it's like, oh, what's that? And we, we had a chat about your work as a puppeteer. And we're really here to talk to you about that, your, uh, your, your work and your leisure as a puppeteer. So before we start with any of that, we need, <laughs> particularly in an audio format, to talk about what is a puppet and what does it mean to be a puppeteer. So can you just introduce us a little bit to that world um, so that our audience have an idea about what we are talking about? Right. So a puppet can be anything, but it's generally some inanimate object that you as a puppeteer then bring to life through movement. So there's people who do found object puppetry and that's very much about finding objects that kind of lend themselves to puppetry and it's about finding the object's movement uh, in order to give it life. What would be more recognisably a puppet is in the UK context, kind of glove puppets, where you have a head typically made out of wood or plastic and some hands, and then you have some cloth in the middle. And it's often those kind of softer materials that you can move more easily that lend themselves to puppetry. It's not always the case, but kind of shorthand. So a Muppet is a puppet. It's a very recognisable puppet and because of its mouth. And that's where the kind of movement is centred. And of course, around the hands and, and around the head. Often the most effective puppets have some sort of head movement. It's all about where the puppet or object is looking. And that can often categorise a, a good puppet from a not so good puppet. My kind of specialism is marionettes. So they're really nice to have as a Zoom background and can start some nice conversations sometimes, as happened with Petia. Yes, uh, they are. So uh, I've got a, a large wooden uh, marionette that I've used in a few performances. I have some 3D printed puppets, uh, 3D printed marionettes, and I have some from my childhood as well. And this was very much my medium as a young puppeteer. M many uh, puppeteers get into it as a child, you know, seeing a puppet show, being really enchanted by it and wanting to get into it because they're so kind of captivated by the medium, which was very much the case for me. And luckily it was through marionettes. So as a child, I bought a lot of marionettes. I'm, I'm more of a performer than a maker. And I got really good at it just by doing it a lot as a child. And often those skills that you adopt in those formative years come with you. And it's something that is built into your muscle memory almost. So even if you could say in my teenage years, you know, I, I didn't play with puppets so much, then re-engaging with it a few years later, it's it's something that you've still got. It's a little bit like a musical instrument, really. 
Thanks, Matt. And I think it's it's a recurrent theme uh, that uh, trying something out in childhood and um, and and then finding a time and place for it later in life. I think um, this uh, came very clearly in, in our kind of fly fishing episode as well about trying something as a child, liking it, and then then coming back back to that. So you started with that kind of childhood journey. Uh, you just started in engaging with puppeteering. Can you just tell us a little bit how you, you came to be doing puppeteering as, as, a, as a kid um, and where your journey has taken you? So um, how far you have come with this? How, where, where was the puppeteering journey before COVID? Where is it now? Yeah, right. So when I was a child going to days out or fates or fairs often there is a puppet show and my parents tell the story of if there was a puppet show three times during the day I would be there at each of those times during the day to watch the show and I guess if you're into something that much as a child, then your your parents do support you in that. So my father made me a puppet booth, uh, which I spent many hours kind of doing puppet shows within that booth. And perhaps a little bit later, I, I met uh, some puppeteers who do kind of an old school dancing marionettes show and they saw how interested I was so they kind of befriended me and I bought some of their puppets they gave me some puppets as some gifts and I had yeah as a kid a little show that I would do children's parties with mainly it's normally like a cheap alternative to getting a professional entertainer. It's it's the keen puppeteer who, you know, you give them 20 quid and they'll do a show that keeps the party occupied for a while. And that's really about as far as it went as I was a child, kind of getting older, 10, 11, 12 I um, was still interested in puppetry, but it wasn't such a prominent part. I did get quite into magic as a child, a shy child, stereotypical, uh, you know, finding these little curiosities to engage other people in. And then really puppetry re-emerged as I was doing my PhD, I met my partner who runs Newcastle Puppetry Festival. And that was a very formative moment of, wow, puppetry. I love puppetry. And that was really a springboard to start re-engaging. So we started a company together and put in for some Arts Council applications. So we made some little shows just in our house which we then took to festivals music festivals typically and some slightly larger shows that we took to the edinburgh fringe last year again very fortunate timing really um last fringe before uh, everything shut down and we perform sort of when the opportunity comes up and yeah, that was mainly around festivals, mainly 
uh, some theatre shows as well. And yeah, the festival circuit is quite receptive to sort of weird puppetry that we um, we're kind of quite drawn to the stranger side of puppetry, which is which is nice. We perform at our own festival as well. And yeah, I have also uh, performed as a puppeteer. Uh, I've been employed as a puppeteer on some other shows. So often there was a Christmas show a few years back of A Christmas Carol where all the ghosts were puppets. So, And I had to do some acting there, which was very... <laughs> I'm not. I'm really not an actor, but uh, sometimes you're lumped in with these sort of other roles. And then last year with Odd Doll Theatre in Doncaster, I did a show called Whiskers First Winter, which was a show about a little bear in this um, landscape of snow and about him discovering the world and meeting new friends. I didn't puppeteer the bear, I puppeteered everything else, which was really fun. So I was the the birds that uh, Whisker met and a, a yak that sort of appeared at the top of the mountain and was uh, just sort of skied and yodeled. So we did that for a month at the end of 2019 at a lovely theatre in Doncaster. And that was that was just before I started my academic role. I, in fact, pushed back the start of my start date because I had this in the diary, even going so far. I don't know if I should say this uh, to say, oh, no, I can't I can't take the job at UE because I've, I've got this if that's the start date. So and as a result of that, they pushed my start date to uh, just after just after the show. So. Yes, that's so it's part of my uh, professional life as well, although, you know, not so much in the, the past year or so because of because of world events. <laughs> OK, thank you, Matt. This is fascinating. And I I, I um, I'm looking at the faces of Sam and Kat and I think they all have so many questions to ask. And there's so much to unpack about the world of puppeteering. And um, that I very deliberately didn't really say a math's leisure pursuit is puffeteering because um, how leisurely it is, this seems to be a recurring theme now, how leisurely the pursuit is, is, is also quite an interesting concept when you have been actually doing, doing shows and so forth. We'll dig into all of that. But I would like to ask one of my last standard question, and that's the question why? why puppeteering and what is the appeal and you said you were fascinated in that as as a, as a kid and you you were obviously very happy and keen to come back to that as an adult but why why uh, why puppeteering for you why is it why why that pursuit for you it's such a difficult question isn't it when Something is so kind of part of you, and then you sort of have to psychoanalyze yourself and be like, "Oh, maybe it was my childhood trauma," or not saying it's that. I think there's there's a real relationship between magic and puppetry, in that it's these moments of wonder, and it's a little curiosity that 
captures people. I think there is an intrinsic kind of magic of a puppet when it's puppeteered well and that people can recognise that there is an object there that is not real and it has been made real. And that is universally, I think, recognisable. If you do a bit of puppetry on the streets, even if it's a little rag or something, or if you, you pick something up and you turn it alive, it will get attention from people. And there's also things that that object, that puppet can do that isn't available to you in real life. So when we're advertising the festival in Newcastle City, I could be going up as me giving a flyer. It's so much better if that's a puppet because a puppet can get into somebody's space. It can make a face. It can be a bit more intrusive or a bit more playful in a way that would just be kind of odd as a person. So I think it's interesting kind of these art forms that give you something extra, give you something that isn't available in our everyday medium. So we've only got access to a certain amount of stuff through conversation, whereas I think really valuable art forms give you kind of something else. I think it's the same with music. I think it's the same with dance. Um, it, it's it's giving access to something else and a different vocabulary that kind of enriches life, I guess. And I guess it's the medium that I'm drawn to because of the life experience that I've had having done it since I was a child and being familiar with the medium you kind of I've made it my medium if you like uh, I guess that's my best answer. Thanks Matt we did uh, warn you that this uh, devils into psychoanalysis here it doesn't <laughs> none of us have any expertise in this psychology but we do have expertise in serious leisure um, in uh, in the face of Sam. This is such an insightful uh, answer and it, it kind of picked up on so many interesting themes and before I say anything else, I can see Kat is keen to get in on this. So, Kat, do you want to, to come in, please? Thanks, Petia. That's so, so interesting, Matt. So many different things you touched on there. And obviously, as a musician, it really resonated with me when you were moving into this discussion of that liberation of moving beyond uh, communicating through language and just being able to put words aside and have an experience of connection with other people that uses different um, a different medium. And also, I was um, intrigued by you you picking up on the way that uh, a puppet can disregard social codes and uh, can do things differently than what we what we have to do within our normal social codes, which reminded me of a previous episode we have actually when there was a guest uh, talking about their music life and uh, finding when they're being a musician, they could again suspend social codes and be more playful um, and do things in a different way in terms of their interactions, that kind of liberating aspect. I wonder, again, at the risk of like toe-dabbing into psychology, whether... You could tell me a bit more about the relationship between your sense of self 
you know, and who you who you truly are inside and your relationship with being a puppeteer um, on the basis that, you know, there's you can use different social codes, that you can connect with people using a different medium. Does that feel like a central theme for you or is it actually more that puppeteering gives you a different sort of identity that you can occupy for a time as opposed to an expression of true self? I just would love to hear how that experience is for you. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I I think a lot of people who were shy as children have these kind of pursuits where there's there's something else it's another form of being i guess that kind of marks you out as oh bringing something else to the party this isn't just like the funny kid or the sporty child you know crafting out sort of a niche for yourself in order to kind of exist with other people and relate to other people so yeah I mean just thinking about it now it is a very social thing really because it is all about that relation with other people and it is all about what somebody else kind of gets from that if it's a reaction or if it's uh, they might negatively react to a puppet I don't know I think this identity as a puppeteer is interesting. I think before I'd worked professionally and before I did things like take a show to the fringe, you are anxious about this identity as an artist. It's like, am I a legitimate artist? I'm not doing this full time. I don't so much have that anymore. I think just because... All artists, I think, have that insecurity and everybody does other things as well and has to find a way of making it work for them. I think the so the identity as a puppeteer, (laughs) thinking about my Twitter profile, it's like puppeteers on there. (laughs) I got to the point where I was comfortable doing that. I think there's an interesting thing, though, about this notion of self and the puppet in that you are making another object alive and that this is very much not a crude operating of a puppet the puppeteer pulling the strings it's it's making an object alive and that that you have to have conviction that that object is alive in order for it to be a convincing puppet and you almost have to shed a sense of your own identity which is probably a bit of a fallacy because you can never really do that but you're channeling energy that you might be putting into engaging with somebody in some other way into this puppet and what you are then as a puppeteer is supplementary to that object the the puppet has to become more important so I think there is something interesting there about a sense of self, sense of ego, and maybe actually letting go of that and you becoming a facilitator rather than being worried about your presentation of self. Brilliant. I think I think Petty wants to, wants to come in here. I just just before um, Petty um, uh, pops in with her comments, I was just going to say, and uh, she's she's laughing. Of course, if you're listening, you won't see her laughing. 
because we we are so wordy here on this podcast um that i uh just i'm struck by the notion of of actually a, a sense of escaping self then from what you said matt i know i don't mean that this, the self is a is a horrible experience but often we think about serious leisure as a narrative about a place where we can take a break and i'm sort of struck in the way that that resonates with actually the putting aside of ego that is involved in that artistry of puppeteering is is in many ways also therefore taking a break actually isn't it because you have to take a break from oneself and preoccupations and completely focus on on bringing to life this other object so thanks so much for explaining that uh Petio, i'm going to hand over to you now as i know uh, that you have now got a, a further question for matt Thanks, Kat. I don't necessarily have a question. I was just struck by the parallels uh, with improv theater. And um, I suspect Kat with, with music as well, though I'm not a musician. Um, the entire the, the explanation, the, uh, the really juicy explanation um, that, that kind of Matt came in about something that comes, uh, the way I interpret it is that Matt talks about something that comes from him but then it becomes separate from him. Uh, so that that kind of bringing life to, to the puppet. And, and um, so so it, it obviously it originates in you, but but then it, it kind of brings its own its own self to, to life, which which I think is it's 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 um, so interesting. And the, the other stuff that, that struck me also as a parallel with with improv theater is that kind of it's it's also a tool for connection, but it's too tool for shedding. Um, and to, to for kind of becoming free or expressing yourself in a different way. Um, and so so that's the um, and the fact that you need to. So it's an expression of the self and the ego, but it, you also need to put the self and the ego aside for that moment of creation to take place, um, which which is exactly what what happens in a in a space where you're kind of improvising, you're creating a new character on the spot from what's what's around you and it's yourself but it's also not yourself and you have to shed all your ego to be free in the moment um, and i just I just thought there were fascinating um similarities um there i saw sam um wants to come in here because i think there's a fair bit of stuff in relation to the serious leisure perspective that we can bring into the conversation yeah thanks betty i'm sat here frantically noting down everything you're saying max it's just it's really really fascinating uh i mean i'm not going to get into a systematic breakdown of what makes this a serious leisure pursuit as such but uh, i mean certainly what you can hear in in how you're talking matt is is this you know that, that you found we've, we're talking about this space for uh, self-expression uh this this otherness you know the the alternative space for for that and how that space is is allowing you to express a combination of those very specific special skills and knowledge uh, and experiences that you have in this in this uh, domain uh, of leisure particularly um so you can see how that all you know in terms of the serious leisure perspective how all that knits together in terms of those qualities um i mean i, I think certainly we'd, we'd position this in, in and around the the idea of it being a, an amateur pursuit given the fact that you have dabbled with uh the professional side of you know performance art um and you know as the serious leisure perspective outlines you know these serious amateur serious leisure pursuits can bring about income generation in small in small small parts but that's not the defining feature and that's the important thing 
what I'm really interested in, and it's it's kind of the backdrop to everything that you're talking about, is this relationship between the craft of puppetry, puppeteering, and the social world of which that's part. And I, I wondered if you could, because obviously we're talking about this, uh, uh, you know, the, the alternate to this is, you know, it's, it's opposite to work, you know, or is it opposite to work? It's an escape from work. But I'm interested in that relationship, the relationship between the craft and the social world of puppeteering and, and what it is about that that is endearing. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing you framing the the framing of leisure i think for this podcast is is particularly interesting because as you were touching on there and at the beginning picture that line of is it leisure is it not and maybe that becomes like a binary as well that that actually that thing shifts so right now puppeteering is not a part of my role as a academic <laughs> like um it's not part of my annual progression or anything um you you know but at another stage of my life or in a different department or in a different you know that that might take the four so i think this kind of spectrum of leisure and as something that we can fall in and fall out of and that notion of an amateur as well, that because the amateur is the person who just pursues something because it is a passion, and you know maybe that's that's kind of interesting in the 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 framing of leisure. In in terms of the social social side, I think it's there's a network of puppeteers who tend to be slightly odd people. <laughs> <laughs> very there's there's a whole mix of puppeteers from the very old school punch and judy taking that side you know very seriously it's the old school entertainer often one person on their own or two people on their own doing the show there's also a kind of protection there of the craft and the you know the punch and judy voice that um the the very high pitched thing there's a specific technique that i won't disclose here to get that and that's kind of like a protected secret so again there's a kind of parallel of magic here it's like this the secret of the craft there's also then the more um since warhorse i think particularly there's been an increased interest in puppetry Interesting, when I first saw Warhorse, I didn't recognise it as a puppet the first time because it's it's replicating real life. But of course, it, it is puppetry. And that has, I think, made a whole bunch of new people interested in the possibilities in terms of a theatrical sense. There's interesting kind of actor puppeteers who kind of grapple the, the two roles. And then there's... Uh, the puppetry purists who say, you know, well, a true puppeteer is all about the puppet and uh, can be a bit resentful of the actors who kind of take up puppetry because it's possibly a slightly uh, easier to find work. I don't know. Um, so there is a there is a whole social side there to the 
the puppeteer. I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, Sam, or not. <laughs> I'm really just interested in exploring that that world a little bit more. You know, obviously we're talking about the the, the act of ob object manipulation and and the, the creative expressive art behind puppetry. But this is set against the backdrop of, like you've already intimated, of a fairly unique social world and context, a, a subculture, if you like, within a broader arts-based kind of culture. I mean, and you've mentioned magic, and obviously we've looked at the parallels between music as well. But you, you were touching on there the, um, the, the unique ethos of that social world is something that you appear to identify quite strongly with. And, and I wondered, you know, before Kat comes in with a, a kind of a follow-up here, you know, what is it about that social world that you identify with most directly? I wonder if you actually choose to identify with a group because of those social dynamics, or I more get the sense that the community of puppetry are interested in puppets and that that's the one thing that kind of brings them together and then that social dynamic is a kind of mismatch of all the people that find themselves in that community rather than it being this <laughs> vibrant community that you kind of want to be a part of and you take up puppetry as a result of that i almost think with something kind of as niche as puppetry that has to be the focus maybe your own practice or your own craft and then yeah it's it's the group of people that emerge from that that's wonderful thanks matt kat do you want to jump in there thanks sam yeah as you were describing people's different attitudes matt and describing you know puppeteers who ha have a more purist position of like oh those you know puppeteering actors get them out of the way and then um uh, different sort of attitudes that people have got it really struck me that um some of the language of leisure I feel like could be problematic for that community. I'd really be interested in your response because we we have difficulties with the word with the word amateur in general, don't we? Even though we all know that that means someone who's doing it for the love. But I know as as a musician, for example, if someone describes me as an amateur, there's something inside me wants to get a little handbag and start waving it about and sort of saying, "Excuse me." Um, and I think this is part of the life of the artist you were talking about, isn't it? Because our uh, art is on the fringe. And so we try, we've got to try and uncover the language to deal with it. I wonder, um, how, do you, how do you frame that for you? Do you sort of see yourself, um, or is it important to you to, to, to see yourself actually with a, slight, with a professional tone around puppeteering or, uh, or, just as an, uh, or as an artist, a professional artist, or do you keep that for yourself as sort of something that you're doing for you, which might move it more towards this slightly leisurely flavour? Um, how does that work for you? And how, how do you think the community would wrestle with some of this language? Right, right. I mean, it's it's the curse of the artist, isn't it? Constantly trying to legitimise themselves. And it probably overlaps into other things as well. But that affirmation that you have to give yourself, ultimately, that yes, what I'm doing is worthwhile, and I am this person who pursues these interests and 
yeah, you have to have a certain amount of self-assurance, I think, to make it as a as an artist, because it is often dismissed a little bit, even very successful artists, I think, talk about, oh, when are you going to get a proper job? And it's interesting that I do have a proper job right now. Um, you know, I'm, I'm full time academic. And yes, I guess fitting within that social, yeah, that, that, that line of professionalism and being a amateur is interesting. It's, I, um, yeah. no that's okay it's it's challenging how I I was you used words uh, you used the word legitimacy and I think this is such a major issue because when we're trying to make time for the things that we love and they may be things that we are skilled at at a professional level right as you are as a puppeteer um but somehow we have to make these narratives don't we uh, to make them legitimate pursuits um to make time for them and also to frame them in the way that we want them to be framed by people around us uh, Petty, did you want to jump in yes i i do although i'm not sure if i have a fully framed thought in my head but i'm really interested in this so we we had a previous podcast um for our listeners um um, up to May 2021, we are yet to release that one, but we had recorded it previously, where we had a musician who was part-time employee of the university and part-time pursuing a professional music career. Um, and and both both were professional identities. Um, and <laughs> I, I thought of this term that often gets bounded around about portfolio career, and I thought this is another level <laughs> of a portfolio career where you have... Um, your kind of university academic role, but you also have another role elsewhere. Um, and that our narratives um, at the moment are very much about you are X and then you commit yourself to X. You're a lecturer and you're a full-time lecturer and you commit all of yourself to lecturing. And, and at its worst, you commit all of yourself fully to, to that role where everything else gets, gets squeezed out. Whereas in your case, you have two solid identities and their personal identities and their professional identities, and they coexist. And they almost feel like they co coexist in somewhat of an equal footing, even though one might take more time and be higher income, and the other one might take uh, you know, less of your time or the time might get squeezed in, then you might not be as higher income. But the how much you give of yourself and the professionalism that you put into that um, is what defines it, not so much the outputs or the external reference point or external recognition cat. But, but also I think the difference could be, and then Matt, this is where I'd really like to hear what you think, is about the what, what we get from that. When you're talking about puppeteering and talking about that enchantment, that, cap that captivation that happens with, with the audience, and I also feel as if that that is the experience of the puppeteer, that life-giving facilitation you've described, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, marking and assessing academic work, I don't know, really crosses over into that experience particularly. <laughs> and so for me, the big difference here is about what that, you know, what this activity gives to you. Uh, would you like to comment on that? 
Great, yes. So there's a side of academia which is performative, and I think there's that side of me that I am able to kind of channel into my teaching and doing seminars and things. You you are a performer of sorts. I think the reality of it is that that takes up such a small part of a lecturer's life. And you you don't realise that until you actually take up an academic role and you realise how much of your time is spent just doing all of this other stuff and field boards and institutional things. Like you say, there's uh, this is a result of... Um, capitalism in a way you know it's needing money it's needing uh, it's life can be a lot easier if you have a salary so I think there is a, a monetary aspect to that and I, I guess it's interesting that that framing has to kind of form our notion of identity and professional identity whereas that is just a symptom of the world really that we are required to earn a certain amount of money to pay some bills and particularly we'll probably get on to covid but you know that has for artists generally just been hugely disruptive because suddenly you can't work you know your what you've spent all of this time developing in yourself and making it your life and making it your craft you are literally no longer able to do and I, I don't think we'd like to say that that then renders those identities uh, illegitimate it it is just a symptom of you know the the social world that we have to have to occupy so it's, a, it's an interesting one. And I think it does go back to your own assurance in yourself of certain things being an identity, but also getting that recognised by other people is nice. So say like a review that you get, or I was just, um, I'm a contributor to a book on uh, qualitative analysis. And in the bio that they wrote for me, it was like, that's a social psychologist who also works as a puppeteer. And it's like, oh, it's interesting that that's being picked up by other people. I think sometimes because it's interesting, isn't it? It's a bit different. <laughs> so people are kind of drawn by that. But that recognition also gives it a sense of legitimacy and we need to be legitimized to kind of um, contradict myself slightly is that if a certain part of us is such an important part of our identity that needs to be reflected back to us in order for us to feel sure of that identity I think. Mm, that's really yeah that's absolutely right yeah that's really insightful Matt. Could, could I, I know we don't have an awful lot of time, but I wondered if I could just uh, lean in a little bit to what is happening for you? What is your experience when you're puppeteering? Uh, you know, what do you what do you feel like when you're doing that? It's a real focus. And it's probably something everyone can resonate 
with if they're doing something that they are passionate about and feel that they're competent at uh, where and you can recognize it in other people as well you see a great musician and you can see that that's all they're focusing on or that's really where they're channeling everything and then that becomes quite mesmerizing for an audience to watch so that's that's the i that's the ideal is that you kind of really as we were saying earlier kind of shedding yourself and just putting your focus into doing that uh, job very well and doing uh, it's quite a technical exercise so you have to you often have to be very precise and you have to be very controlled and it can kind of become all consuming in that way but there's also having worked with a director you have to so sometimes you can really get into something and think yeah this is great and but you don't actually have that objective third eye of like is this coming across well so you can feel it's like yeah the puppet really wants to do this in this moment and then a director goes no that doesn't <laughs> <laughs> it looks rubbish. So you also have to, and and doing a show over and over again, you hone that skill of also being able to look outside yourself and kind of remember, it's like, oh, the director said it looks great if I do this. And you kind of can lean into that. Um, but also doing a show over and over, you do... Um, you've got to still try and find that spark and try and think like the puppet. So if you are vocalising everything that the puppet is going through, it makes it so much more convincing. I worked with a director who really made us do that and it really does show, you know, it's like, oh, little thing here let's have a look at that oh and you're literally stepping through that monologue in your head and it, it's it's amazing how it can translate uh, even though nothing's being said but it is kind of internally and it feels like Matt when you're talking about that and of course our listeners can't see your face but I'm reading I'm reading this kind of joy from you is that the kind of emotion that is associated with those experiences you talked about the focus and the technical skill um and the thinking of the director holding these two spaces of facilitating the puppet remembering what it is that's going to work for the audience but emotionally what is that space for you mm, it's a openness i guess it's yes yeah, it's, no it's a it's a very uh, joyful <laughs> activity for me you know it's very um it, it's it's a very pleasant space to kind of uh, uh occupy yourself really i remember when i was doing the show staying with some friends uh, with some people who were hosting us and uh, talking about oh that joy of, of the child when they first see the thing versus the <laughs> students asleep in the back of the lecture hall and that does stick with me a little bit you know there is there is something about trying to make these these moments and really being preoccupied with making something 
special and magical and wonderful and or at least having those intentions it translates a little bit into lecturing you know i really want to make this a, a good experience i want to be present i want to so there there are these crossovers that we can explore but i think institutionally and i think professionally those that can become a bit of a drain on those joyful aspects that you try and capture in um an academic job but it is difficult to it's, it's more difficult to maintain that. I think there's a, a specialness about creating a show or creating a moment that you can just embrace that because it's it's not trying to be anything else. It's, it hasn't got any other uh, objectives. Whereas academia comes with a lot of, a lot of baggage. Thanks, Matt. It's... Um... I guess we can spend an hour, another hour talking about the performative aspects of teaching um, and how, um, you know, obviously performing to a bunch of kids in their social time whilst you're engaging with a joyful exper experience is different to a classroom experience, but how you can also get a buzz out of a positive classroom experience, but maybe that not necessarily every time and every day because we have different objectives and different circumstances. So, so that's a, such a fascinating um, uh, a topic of conversation that uh, we could also go into. I'm mindful of time and I want to bring the uh, podcast to a close. I did, however, see Sam taking vigorous notes. <laughs> And I want to invite him, if he wishes to do so, to share some, some final reflections with us before I, I bring this conversation to its end. Yeah, thanks, Beth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we haven't got long enough for all the notes. Um, just too much interesting stuff, Matt, to, to get into here. But I, I like what, what you just that last piece that you were talking to there. And what really came through was this intentionality to that core activity and as we were talking on uh, around the what you get back from the time you put in and, and i think that's a really interesting dynamic you know this idea of return on investment yeah and and, and i think you know just drawing those parallels between you know the academic side of who you are yeah and you know fairly early career academic in that respect but sometimes we don't necessarily get such a great return on investment in our in our academic. You know, I'm seeing everybody nodding their heads now. So I certainly put myself in that. You know, we, we certainly go above and beyond. Um, but you know, what's problematic for me in that is, you know, why are we doing that? You know, what what's the what matters most there for us? You know, but that intentionality of the act of and being part of that sense of belonging, that sense of identity, that sense of uh, alternative means of expression. So that return on, on investment, that intentionality, I think is really, really interesting. And I, and I think that draws some interesting uh, fault lines between you know, what we're talking about here in terms of that leisure act and perhaps our professional self in terms of the, the academic. Sorry, Matt, did you want to just quickly jump in there? Yeah, that's really fascinating. I just wanted to respond quickly about the purity of certain endeavours and 
I don't know, maybe there's a sort of lectureship, uh, pure model of the professor of yesteryear, you know, that comes and people are so interested in what they've got to say. And there's a kind of allure there. There's a there's a purity there that, that really cannot exist in um, academia these days. But certainly, I think that intentionality that purity, I think, is possible in puppetry because you can just pick up an object and have a encounter, have a transaction, have a relational moment. And that is a whole lot more possible in puppetry for me, but it might be something else for other people. And yeah, there's a real human purity to that so yeah thanks Sam <laughs> thank you Matt and thank you Sam I think the um, um, as, as a closing remark I was struck the maybe what you were talking about Matt if I interpreted you correctly is that in puppeteering the act is the point in and of itself that act of creation and act of being together and experiencing the creation together Whereas in our kind of professional academic roles, there are many purposes. Um, and each of us might come with a different purpose in mind. So the space, therefore, is not as pure because the, there is no to one purpose. There's multiple purposes that we are per serving um, in relation to what we think the purpose of education is, the purpose of that educational encounter is, um, and, and all of that, that, that that's involved. Um, so, so therefore, it's a kind of in, in my head. I interpreted the purities. There's one clear purpose in one clear space, where the educational encounter is much more complex than than that, and, and that there's many values and interactions and perspectives being brought to that. So, if everybody allows me to have that as the final comment for today, um, just because we are running out of time, it has been a fascinating conversation. And we could have talked for hours more. We dabbled a little bit into psychology and a little bit into identity, but that was um, important um, for, for this podcast. And of course, Matt brought his professional expertise from his two different professional identities into, into his fascinating story. So um, I would just like to thank him for his time and for his insights and for his storytelling. So thank you so much, Matt, for uh, for spending some an hour here with us today. Lovely to chat about this stuff. It was absolutely, absolutely our pleasure, Matt. Um, and of course, I would like to um, thank our regular contributors, Kat Branch. Thank you so much. And Matt, this has just been amazing. Thank you. And I wish we did a video so that we could watch some of your puppeteering. So that would be That's my dream. Follow up, maybe. I think so. We'll do a little video. Uh, or let us know of the next performance. Um, so, and thanks, Sam. Um, thank you, Sam Alkington, for um, his uh, insights and contributions. Thanks very much. And uh, Matt, just a second, Kat's uh, sentiment there. It's been an absolute pleasure. And finally, I would like to thank our podcast team, Julia Denman and Helga Ganastadir for their help with this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye until next time when we continue to talk about leisure, work and well-being and indeed different professional identities. 
and what we can all do and how we can all benefit um, from engaging with leisure and other pursuits seriously. Goodbye. <laughs>